Hi, this is Corey Olson, the Tolkien Professor, and I am giving you here part one of my reaction episode about the Hobbit Desolation of Smaug. Um, I ended up talking for so long about this that I decided to break it up into two different halves. Uh, in the first episode here, the first part of the episode, I'm talking about general objections. I'm sort of addressing the major objections that I keep hearing from uh, from Tolkien fans, especially uh, about the films, because so I think there are a lot of things that I just really wanted to talk about in general terms and kind of explain some of the theories and ideas behind the reactions that I have to the films and the way that I try to approach them. So I'm going to start with those, and we'll move to specific analysis of The Desolation of Smaug in Episode 2. Good evening, everybody. Welcome. Um, thanks for everybody who could join me. I know that uh, I mentioned this yesterday, but this ended up being very short notice because I was planning to do it later in the week, and then something else came up. So um, I, uh, I'm glad that so many of you could join me uh, so comparatively spontaneously. Uh, and as always, a special uh, thanks and appreciation to those of you who are joining me uh, in, in difficult circumstances or wildly inconvenient times. I know this is uh, generally true of those of you who are joining uh, from Europe. Um, my you know, this, this, this is my favorite start time for things, 9.30, because it's, uh, 9.30 p.m. Eastern time, because it's the time, uh, when I always have my own children safely in bed, and so it's the easiest time for me to do recordings without distractions, but I know that that time's always awful for people in Europe, um, so <clears throat> those of you who have joined me in the middle of the night, as always, have my special respect, um, let me give just a, a very brief introduction uh, uh, to the interface here for those of you who are new. Um, the most important thing uh, for you to know, oh, and Sandra's here. Good, Sandra. Glad you could join us. Uh, I, I do have. Are you uh, joining me from your your iPad under the covers again, <laughs> as I know you've done before? Uh, excellent. Anyway, um, as I said, for those of you who are unfamiliar with the interface here, you will have a little question box um, on your uh, control panel there when you type uh, those in. And, and uh, hit return, I get those in real time. Now, tonight I'm going to be doing things a little bit differently in that I have I, I have a little bit of lecturing I want to do, uh, especially here at the beginning. So I'm not going to be uh, in I'm not going to be engaging with your comments continuously, which means uh, when I stop for questions and comments at various points later on, I, I, there I will probably have a very large backlog. Um, so anyway, I just want uh, you to uh, be aware of that. And to apologize in advance uh, for not being able to get to uh, all of the comments, uh, doubtless. Um, anyway, so uh, let me let me uh, talk a little bit about what we're going to doing, what we're going to be doing here tonight. Of course, I'm going to be talking about the Hobbit, the Desolation of Smaug, and and giving my reactions and my thoughts about the film. Um, but before I actually talk about the movie itself, um, I definitely feel. Um, a, a, a strong need to address some kind of larger issues that get in a lot of people's way. Um, that is, I really want to clear away some of these things which I believe simply to be obstacles to discussion. Um, and then we can carry on with the actual discussion and go through some major scenes, scenes and elements, uh, from the film. And of course, in that section, I will especially be interested, uh, in your own observations and questions. Um, though, of course, I have some bits from the film that I wanted to emphasize uh, uh, myself. But let me start with the larger issues. I want to go through five different sort of objections or criticisms that I always, you know, that I, that I saw last year and I'm seeing even more uh, vehemently urged this year. Um, and these are the, the main thing that all five of these have, have in common is that they are not, in my opinion, an 
any actual response or, or, or well, they are, they're, they are a response, I suppose. They're, they, none of them involve actual analysis of the films themselves. They are, rather, reasons to resist doing analysis or thinking carefully about the films. And I respect many of them, some of them. Um, but, uh, but I, I, as I say, I feel like before any actual substantive discussion about what is going on in this film and what relation does that bear to Tolkien's story and how do we understand all this, um, we have to kind of get these out of the way before we can really get anywhere. Objection number one. Um, they changed so much. It's just not like the book. There's all this extra stuff. Now, I talked about that a lot last year in the session I did on the first Hobbit film. Um, you know, when people look at the, watch the films and say, that wasn't Tolkien's story. No, of course it wasn't. You can't have Tolkien's story. Or that is, you can have Tolkien's story. You can always have Tolkien's story in the book where it always was. This is not Tolkien's story. This is not written by Tolkien. It's adapted by Peter Jackson. You can no more insist upon the same thing than you could insist upon the same thing in a translation into another language. Uh, it's just, it's not, it's not possible. Um, we have to take the film on its own ground and think about it as a story. What is it doing? And then compare it with what's going on in the book. We, it is absolutely inappropriate to go to a film and expect the book projected up on screen. Um, that is, um, at least a, uh, simplistic expectation. Um, but anyway, as I said, I, I'm not going to spend too much time on that, uh, on that issue. Um, because I did spend a, a good deal more time on it last year, and, and that issue hasn't really changed. Uh, good, as uh, as Sarah uh, Lagarde says, uh, we, we we need to criticize the soup as soup. Uh, she's quoting here uh, Tolkien from On Fairy Stories. Um, yes, yes, rather than rather than trying to sort through the soup. Um, uh, so okay. So that's one issue, and as I said, that that's 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 uh, that's that's the first thing that I want to clear away. Secondly, the people who say these films are nothing like the children's story that I love, right? I love The Hobbit. You know, The Hobbit is this delightful, beautiful, funny, tender children's story, and the films are just something totally different, and I can't get over that. Yes, you're absolutely right. The films are not the child, the child story that you love. They are making absolutely no effort to be that child story. Um, so on the one hand, people who say, Oh, I don't like the, you know, I, I, the films really fail to, to, to capture this. They're not trying to capture that. That's not at all what they're doing. You can say, I wish they had done it, or I'd like it better if they did try to do that and tell a, the, a more simple, comical, lighthearted children's story than the larger epic story that they, that, that they've told. You can wish they did something else, but it's, it's, it's a little silly to, to say, well, they have failed because they didn't do that. They're not trying to do that. Um, in not doing that, in choosing not to do The Hobbit as a light-hearted children's story, is that choice in itself doing violence to Tolkien's vision for The Hobbit? And my answer to this, as I've said on many other places, is absolutely not. Um, and in fact, um, I think it could be stated even much more firmly than I've stated it in other places before. I'm gonna, I'm, 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 I'm gonna read you a little something if I can. Um, this is from Tolkien's letters that I'm reading you here. Um, this letter is from a letter he wrote to W.H. Auden in 1955. As always, by the way, um, one good, um, if you, if you have, which I strongly recommend, a copy of Tolkien's letters, 
Um, and, uh, and, and you read them, you must always remember two things. This is something that I've, that I've learned from, uh, from Verlin Flieger, wonderful Tolkien scholar, um, who always insi- who's, who's very insistent on this. This is always the first thing she says when you talk about the letters. Always pay attention to when it was written and to whom it was written, because it often has a big impact on the kinds of things that Tolkien says and how he says them. So in order to make sure we contextualize it, we need to make sure we get that. This is in 1955, so notice right at the time of the release of the the Lord of the Rings. So the Lord of the Rings is being published as he's writing this. Okay, that's the era that he's writing it. And he's writing it to W.H. Auden, the famous English poet. And um, and Auden, of course, was a former student of Tolkien's and a friend. So this is, so, so keep, we need to keep that in mind that he, you know, he's not writing to his publisher. He's not writing to a fan. He's not, he's writing to a longtime friend. Okay, when he writes this. Now, he, he, he writes about the Hobbit. Um, let's see, where was I here? <laughs> this is the problem with actually doing this out of a book, is that I'm forgetting the place where I was, uh, where I was, okay, alright, um, here we are. The Hobbit was unhappily really meant, as far as I was conscious, as a children's story. And as, and as I had not learned by then, and my children were not quite old enough to correct me, it had, it has some of the silliness of manner caught unthinkingly from the kind of stuff I had had served to me, as Chaucer may catch a minstrel tag. I deeply regret them. So do intelligent children. Let me do that again, as I was, as I was kind of breaking that up again. Uh, the Hobbit was unhappily really meant, as far as I was conscious, as a children's story, and I had not learned since, and I had not learned since then, as my children, and my children were not quite old enough to correct me. It had some of the silliness of manner caught unthinkingly from the kind of stuff I had had served to me. I deeply regret them. So do intelligent children. You see the point that Tolkien makes here. This is a really important, uh, this is a really important thing. Throughout his later life, from this, you know, from, from around this point in his life onwards, Tolkien what that thing which so many people are missing in the films, that, that thing which so many people are lamenting in the films, Tolkien regretted and spoke very vehemently against. Yes, the Tolkien, the, yes, the Hobbit was written for children by Tolkien. Yes, it was, it was written in this lighthearted, comical manner. In retrospect, he hated that and said here and many other places that he would totally do it differently if he had it to do again. He felt that his tone, that the tone of the narrator was condescending uh, and inappropriate. He would never do that again. Uh, he wrote The Lord of the Rings very differently, wished that he had written uh, The Hobbit uh, in the style of The Lord of the Rings from the beginning, that he had not tried to do this. You know, he says later on that he believes the reason he wrote it as a children's story, yes, he was telling it to his own children, but he, he, he says that that wasn't exclusively it. He wrote it he wrote that story as a children's story because he felt that he had to. Because at that time in his life, back in the early 30s, he was still buying into the idea that fairy tales and fairy stories are a children thing, right? That's the kind of story that you write for children. So he wanted to write a fantasy story, and so he wrote it as a children's book. And later on, when he had thought more about this and had very firmly rejected that idea, he really wished that he hadn't done this. So... um and of course, as Yana is, uh, is, is pointing out, um, you have, uh, he, he actually did sit down in 1960, uh, to do a revised Hobbit. He wanted to get rid of the, 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 the children aspect of it. 
um, and to make it into a grown-up story in the style and spirit of The Lord of the Rings. Um, and it, he got two, two and a half chapters in, uh, and I, I just, it's kind of dreadful, actually. Um, sorry, Sandra was asking for which letter I'm, I'm quoting from. That's letter number 163. It's page 215 in my edition that I was reading from. Um, anyway, so, um, now, now again, I, I was pointing out the context. He's writing this to a friend. He's using pretty strong language here. Um, and I, I think, you know, one, one kind of qualification that I would make here, um, is that I, he's being a little incautious in his language. I don't know that he would speak that strongly if he were writing to a new, you know, to a, to a newspaper editor or to his publisher or something like that. Um, uh, so, uh, to some extent, I kind of take the strength of his language, the vehemence of his language there, um, uh, with 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 a little bit of salt, but um, but still, I, obviously, this was a this was a, a a conviction of his. Now, I will also say, by the way, and for the record, that I disagree with Tolkien here. This is one of several points in his later career. There there are several times when he looks back later in his career on stuff that he did earlier, and regrets it and thinks it wasn't good, and really wishes he'd done it differently. And in which I frankly disagree with him. Um, I think it is good actually i i love the hobbit the way it is i wouldn't uh change it i don't deeply regret i don't deeply regret regret it deeply or otherwise um and there you know again like i'm just sort of me in 1955 tolkien will just like agree to disagree on this on this point and i'm at peace with that it's fine but the larger point yeah and as as ben is uh reminding us uh, and the revised Hobbit was never finished precisely because it rejects the whimsy of the original Hobbit, which is its defining characteristic. Yes, as one of his friends to whom he sent uh, the early draft, uh, those first two chapters of the 1960 Hobbit, told him, it's nice, but it's not the Hobbit, right? It, and it wasn't. Um, and boy, am I glad he abandoned it. Um, it was like, <laughs> basically, the, the 1960 Hobbit, which if you want to read for yourself, um, get a copy of John Ratliff's The History of the Hobbit. That's R-A-T-E-L-I-F-F, John Ratliff's History of the Hobbit in the two-volume, or the one-big-volume edition. Um, this is the comprehensive source. You can see the full text uh, of his 1960 Hobbit there. Um but anyway, it's it's like it's like the Hobbit, but without the fun. I mean, it's just uh, it's 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 really not very good. But again, larger point here. Back to the film. The whole point is, um, in choosing to abandon the childhood angle and uh, to, to not in, in in choosing to make the Hobbit story to do a version of the Hobbit story that is not lighthearted and childlike. Um, that in fact makes it into a story in the register and sort of on the scale of The Lord of the Rings, Peter Jackson and company are explicitly following in Tolkien's tracks. They are themselves doing what Tolkien himself wished he had done, wanted to do, and started to set out to do himself. Now, you can you can dislike how they succeed or not. You can say that they, you know, you don't like what they're doing. But you have to recognize the fact that you can't just say, nobody should do that, Tolkien did that. I mean, then basically you're fighting with Tolkien. Which, again, I do. It's fine. But, but you, you know, just to say, oh, this is not the hobby, you can't do this. Well, again, Tolkien did. So they have uh, justification from Tolkien himself in making that initial choice. Similar to this. Objection number three. The little, the short little Hobbit is now a huge three-film epic. What gives with that? I mean, what, what, what's that all about? 
Again, I've talked about this a lot before. I talked about this a lot last year, and it kind of follows on from the last topic. Tolkien also was, in a sense, doing what was was doing this. In one sense, that's kind of what the Lord of the Rings is. You know, sort of the taking of you know the the Lord of the Rings also began as a little Hobbit story, like the Hobbit, um, in the tone and mode and 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 register of the Hobbit, and grew into something much bigger and much wider. Um, if you take all of Tolkien's later writings, his you know the the his, his the, the appendices he wanted to draw the Hobbit into the Lord of the Rings world. He did that in part, went back and and contextualized it. He began to see, as after, as he was finishing the Lord of the Rings, he was working very hard to go back and make all of the other stuff that he had done really fit in together. He was he was bringing together all of his works into the larger legendarium that we all uh, love and respect. And the Hobbit was a part of that. Well, rather, the Hobbit was was had to be made retroactively into a part of that because it wasn't originally, and it didn't fit. And so he was working to make it fit. And he did this in many ways. We have places where the Hobbit is deliberately commented on, is explicitly commented on, and connected into the Lord of the Rings story. Here I'm thinking um, of the passages in you know, the section of the prologue of the Fellowship of the Ring, where he comments on uh, the Hobbit and sort of retells, um, in particular, the story of the Finding of the Ring um, from that Lord of the Rings point of view. As well, of course, as the references to Bilbo and Gollum and the Finding of the Ring that are worked in throughout the Fellowship of the Ring. This also, the Fellowship of the Ring and the rest of the, the Lord of the Rings, though especially the Fellowship of the Ring. Um, and again, these things prompt us to look back on the story in certain ways and even to reinterpret the story, parts of the story, in certain ways. Especially, of course, most famously, uh, the change to the, uh, to Bilbo's tale, um, in chapter five and his lying version of it. Um, as I'm sure most of you know, uh, I'm sure most of you have read my book before, and so, uh, you know, if you hadn't heard it elsewhere, know that um, that Tolkien revised Chapter 5, the Riddle Game uh, chapter, very heavily during the course of writing The Lord of the Rings, um, so that he changed it from where, whereas in 1937 it was Gollum cheerfully um, offering, you know, planning to give him the ring, uh, and then, uh, uh, you know, being scrupulously honest and parting on affable terms, um, you know, changed it to the, uh, to the obsessive creature we've come to know. Um, but again, not only that, the way that, the way that the story of how the ring was starting to work on, uh, Bilbo, which led him to tell a, a, a fake, to make up a fake story, which was the first edition text, uh, and lie to the dwarves about it and all that. Again, all of these ways in which the Hobbit story is commented on and integrated into the, the Lord of the Rings story. And then, of course, you have the, um, then, of course, you have the, the appendices, right? You've got Appendix A and the whole recasting of the story of Durin's folk, um, not to mention the direct comments on the, um, not to mention the direct comments on the, the, uh, the story of Bilbo and, 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 and the beginning of the adventure, which were separated out from Appendix A and later published in Unfinished Tales as the Quest of Erebor. Um, so, so, you know, you've got some of these things where Tolkien is, is actually rethinking. And, and the important thing there is in the Quest of Erebor, you can see Tolkien, um, actually reworking some of the ideas, recognizing that in retrospect, from the Lord of the Rings point of view, heck, even from the point of view of the final chapters of The Hobbit, 
there's some problems with chapter one of The Hobbit. That is, there are some questions that need answering and what's going on there. Um, and so we get Gandalf's version of the story, which helps us to see chapter one of The Hobbit in a completely different way. Um, so anyway, th- there's a lot more that I could say about this. But again, the, the, the point is, clearly, Peter Jackson and team are taking all of these later writings, the unfinished stuff, um, and, 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 and the frame of the Lord of the Rings and the story of the Third Age of Middle-earth as we get it in the Lord of the Rings and in the appendices. And given all that stuff, they're going back and undertaking the following project. What does the Hobbit story look like if it's told with the knowledge of all this later stuff from the beginning? Right? Not just retconned in various ways and explained and contextualized. What happens if you, if you, if you embark on the Hobbit story knowing all this stuff and fitting it into all these things from the beginning? That's, what they're doing. That's what these films are. Again, you can like how they succeed, or you can think they succeed or not. You can like what they do or not, but you have to, you have to judge a thing by what it is and what it is trying to be and what it is trying. That is, in fact, what it's trying to be. Um, again, this, a pa- one pattern that we can see, and I'll bring this up, uh, 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 later on when I'm actually talking about particular moments in the desolation of Smaug. One of the patterns that we can clearly see is that ideas from the Lord of the Rings, or even, again, as I said, from later on in the hub, in the latter end of The Hobbit itself, get worked backwards consistently. This, the, the, you know, the ideas that Tolkien had in the last few chapters of The Hobbit are not always consistently reflected, even in retrospect, even in revision, in the early chapters. And some of the ideas from the Lord of the Rings, again, not he, he didn't actually go back and change the early stuff in order to make it fit with them. Um, one thing that we can see pretty consistently is that in the film, they do that. You know, they actually make uh, that, those things and, and, and are more willing to deviate from those what is said in those early chapters in order to make the whole story hold together from beginning to end. I'm going to give two examples of this uh, later on. Again, as always, you can like it or not, but it's important to recognize what's really happening. So, okay, so three objections so far. Just the fact that they make a lot of changes. Secondly, that it's no longer a children's story. And third, and sort of connected to number two, that it's now this huge three-film epic. What on earth are they thinking or trying to do? The fourth is related to the third one. Usually, when people object to the fact that it's now made into a three-film epic, they usually go on to add, and this is obviously a money grab and therefore despicable. I have two things to say about this. First, what... What percentage of the great works of art in the history of the world were done for money? Answer, most. <laughs> you look back, look back at all the, you know, I think of the authors in my period, you know, you, you know, Virgil, Virgil was trying to pay the bills and curry favor with the emperor when he wrote the Aeneid, one of the greatest works of Western literature. Chaucer, my favorite English author uh, of the Middle Ages. Chaucer is, is, was also trying to pay his bills and trying to keep himself in good odor with the people in power who could support him and encourage him as a poet. Shakespeare was probably the most mercenary of the three that I've mentioned. Shakespeare was a poor guy trying to make a name for himself and save up enough money uh, to, to, to buy his own coat of arms and some land, which he eventually succeeded in doing. Um, and his plays were, done, were extremely commercial. That was the whole point of them. Now, 
of course, the point that I'm... And, and of course, what about Tolkien, right? Tolkien d did, in fact, make money from his books and wanted to make money from his books. Uh, was really hoping that The Hobbit would help him to make ends meet. And when it did, when it sold well, he immediately, at the you know, before the end of 1937, before the book had been released, he was already beginning to work on a sequel. Not because he was at that point working out, you know, these grand new ideas for the, uh, for the reconception of modern fantasy and fairy tales, but because he wanted to produce another book so that he could help to support his family. And there's nothing wrong with that, is the point. Um, I think that this is really a huge red herring. Yes, there are large sums of money involved in making these films. Yes, of course, the studios doubtless are very excited about the idea that it's going to be three films instead of two, because they'll make much more money. Yes, of course. So what? Again, most artists have, been, have done it for the money. It's okay. That's, that's, this just, this, this is not even, um, it just has nothing to do with the films themselves. Um, and as I say, I, 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 I have no objection. I mean, any artist who does not give away all of their art for free is on some level in it for the money. So, you know, let's, let us not, uh, cast stones. The second thing, there's, I said that there were two responses that I have to that objection. That one is that one very simple thing that I think that people are, are being sort of, uh, silly and overly, um, overly high-minded, uh, about money-making. Oh yes, Sandra, I wasn't even gonna go there, but Sandra's right. Um, Sandra, of course, points out that Tolkien sold the rights to his books to studios, um, which has enabled the films to happen in order to make money because he wanted the cash. That's why he did it. Um, yes, absolutely right, Sandra. Um, yeah, and as Kate points out, if the first film had been a flop, lots of people, uh, including Jackson, would have been left with a huge financial loss. That is to say, um, the origin of this was not a get-rich-quick scheme. <laughs> um, yeah, so so if if you want uh, uh, sort of you know evidence that these films have no motivation, uh, but, but in, you know, have some kind of motivation other than profit, um, you can find it there. But again, my point is simply that it's, it's, it's okay. There is no strong dichotomy there. Um, yeah. Um, anyway, now the second, uh, the second response I have though, to the money grab, uh, argument is, all, is much more complicated. And so I'm going to kind of roll that in with my objection number five, uh, which is the films are obviously trying to pander to this or that demographic. That is, you'll hear people say like, oh, you know, what I hate about these films, like they, they destroyed the story because they're just trying to make it an action film to appeal to, you know, teen and 20 something men, or they've added Toriel because they're trying to appeal to women or to men or to something like that. So, you know, you sort of, Basically, when you're in the process of thinking about the film and all you're doing is speculating on the motivations, um, either commercial or otherwise, that the filmmakers had to do this thing, um, I think you have a bit of a problem there. Uh, and I have some objections to this. Um, here is, here is the simple fact that I come back to in response, not individually, but to all collectively of these, uh, of these kinds of arguments. The fact is, when you are making claims about the process or motivation of an author, of an author or artist, you are not doing analysis of the text or the art. 
Okay, I'll say that again. When you are making claims about the process, that is, how this piece of art came about, or about the motivations of the author, you are not doing analysis of the art itself. It is not analysis, it is a way of avoiding thinking. About, it's a way of avoiding doing uh, analysis, in fact. Um, I'm going to read you again. Now I'm going to read you uh, from C.S. Lewis. This is uh, a wonderful collection of C.S. Lewis's essays and stories. I'm going to read you from an essay that C.S. Lewis wrote called On Criticism. Um, now, of course, I am not doing the thing which is one of my own little small pet peeves, that is, knowing that Lewis and Tolkien were friends, uh, sort of assuming that anything either one of them said automatically applies to the other. I'm not doing that. I'm not trying to represent Tolkien's views here. Uh, I want to read you this bit from C.S. Lewis because I, he was a very, very thoughtful critic. Um, and uh, this essay I find very useful on criticism. It's a very useful essay if, uh, if you ever get a chance to read it. Um, and what he's doing in this article is he is you know in this essay is speaking as an as an author critic that is as somebody who who has written fiction you know the chronicles of narnia and others but somebody who is also a professional literary critic he's asking the question what can i learn what can we learn or what has he learned about literary criticism from his experience of being an author and seeing other people do criticism of his books, right? So he's sort of reflecting on that process and saying, what is it that we can learn? You know, how can I become a better critic by seeing some of the things that people do and say when they're criticizing my work? So when I am on the author end of the criticism exchange, what kinds of stuff do I notice and how can that, how, how should that perhaps inform my criticism? Um, Okay, um, so here's, 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 here's what he's, uh, what he's saying about this. He says, okay, when a critic says, when, when, when a critic says that something is bad about a book, he says, by, they might then go on to ask themselves, why is this bad? And by that, he says, they might mean two things. First, they might mean, what do you mean by calling it bad? Wherein does its badness consist? Give me the formal cause. He's using the philosophical term there. Or B, how did it become bad? Why did he write so ill? Give me the efficient cause. Now, the first of these things, remember as he says, what do you mean by calling it bad? In what does its badness consist? That, he says, is the essentially critical question. The problem that he has, he goes on to add, is with the critics who answer only the second question and usually answer it wrong, he says, and unfortunately regard this as a substitute to the answer to the first. That it's, I, again, this is, it's, I'm, I feel bad because I'm kind of pulling this out of a really complicated, uh, essay, but I think it's a really important point, so I want to kind of pause on that for, for, for a second. Again, the two questions. If you object to something in a book or a film or something, um, and you want to think about what you object to, what you don't like, what it is that you think is bad. Are you asking, what makes it bad? In what does its badness consist? Or are you asking, why is it bad? How did it become bad? And his argument is, the first comes from analysis of the text, right? You, you, you can come to an answer of, why is this, what makes this bad? In what does its badness consist? You can get to an answer of that through analysis. That's what you should be doing as a critic. However, if you're trying to answer the question, why is it bad, then you are not being a good critic, he argues. Because normally, when you do that, you're not doing analysis. You're guessing. You're guessing about what was going on with the author, what the author's motivations or thought process was, and his 
and this is again where he's speaking from his own experience as an author, saying most of the time that critics have said such things about his own work, their guesses are simply inaccurate. He was thinking nothing of the kind, or they think that a passage that he wrote was rushed. And it wasn't rushed. It might sound rushed. Again, I'll, I'll read a, a little bit more. Thus a critic will say of a passage, This is an afterthought. He is just as likely to be wrong as right. He may be quite right in thinking it bad. And he must presumably think he has dis discerned in it the sort of badness which one might expect to occur in an afterthought. Surely an exposure of that badness itself would be far better than a, than a hypothesis about its origin? Certainly this is the only thing that could make the critique at all useful to the author? I, as author, may know that the passage diagnosed as an afterthought was in reality the seed from which the whole book grew. I should very much like to be shown what inconsistency or irrelevance or flatness makes it look like an afterthought. It might help me to avoid these errors next time. Simply to know what the critic imagines, and imagines wrongly, about the history of the passage is of no use. Um, anyway, he goes on and, uh, uh, and, and uh, gives some some more examples. But I think that this is a really important distinction, and one that many, many people ignore when they watch the film. So again, coming back to the specific things that people say um, about the film that I've heard many people saying about the desolation of Smaug, they're sacrificing the story to, you know, to, 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 to pander to teenage boys. They've added a love story in order to appeal to this demographic or that demographic or even you know they're only doing this in order to you know pander to the you know memorabilia racket you know they're 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 only thinking of the action figures none of these statements offers any kind of analysis of the film whatsoever they are merely guesses about what the writers were thinking at the time that they did this it's it's about why they made these particular choices. It does no analysis of the choices made, of the story that's actually being told. They are merely guesses about what the writers were thinking. Maybe they're right. They might be right. I don't know. But they might not. And whether they are right or whether they are wrong, we haven't gotten anywhere. We have not come to understand the story itself any better. All we have done is actually avoid doing careful analysis and putting careful thought into the story that we have. And I would add the thing, one of the things that, that, that tends to kind of get it to me the most, uh, in this is that people will tend to say something like, well, it's obvious that they, 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 they say that their guesses, um, such as that, uh, this is obviously a money grab, right? The choice to, to do the Hobbit in three films is obviously just done in order to maximize profits. You know, it's, it's, it's simply a money grab. Um, a guess is not made more certain the more loudly it is insisted upon. It remains a guess, and it might well be wrong. You can say it's obvious, but you are still only guessing. And anyway, as I said, even if we knew it for a fact, where would it get us? Even if we knew that Peter Jackson, even if we knew for a fact, even if Peter Jackson came uh, and, and, and announced to everybody, you know what, actually, I don't care about The Hobbit at all. I don't care about Tolkien at all. I really just wanted to make a buck, and this seemed the best way to go about doing it. Right? Even if, even if he said that, and we knew for a fact that that was true, where would that get us? It wouldn't change our responsibility to look at the, again, Shakespeare 
did do that. <laughs> that was, in fact, Shakespeare's motivation for many of his plays, even most of his plays. Again, I'm not, I love Shakespeare. One of the greatest geniuses in the history of, 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 of the English speaking world. But, um, that fact could never be, uh, the, the question of, uh, his fiscal motivations, um, doesn't have any, uh, doesn't have any bearing on the question, um, of what actually, uh, of what that actually says. Tommy uh, Grooms was asking, what collection is it in? I was reading from this place called uh, Of Other Worlds, is a sort of a recent paperback collection um, that has a number of his essays as well as a few of his uh, uh, short stories, which a lot of people haven't read. Um, okay, okay. Um, let's see. Lee says, the diagnosis of something as an afterthought or, or, or whatever is not intended to help the author or to discern, to discern the truth of the author's motivations, but to warn the reader that it looks or feels like an afterthought, etc. So it is actually helpful in a review to the reader who wishes to decide whether or not to bother reading the book. No, I disagree. Or rather, it's not, it is not that it is in that sense irrelevant, but it's sloppy and lazy. And in my experience with hearing people who talk that way leads to, uh, is, is, is a kind of sloppiness and laziness, which, um, which I think leads to, to, to really big problems, which basically I think really undermines the, uh, the, the, the critical sense and sometimes, uh, the, the intellectual integrity of the reviewer in question. That is, to, you know, again, what in the passage that I read, Lewis was speaking as, again, author and critic, right? And talking about how, how, you know, he as author would, would respond to a review. But it doesn't change the fact that the critic who says that this was an, was an afterthought or sounded like an afterthought. Again, the point that Lewis makes is, by all means, tell me what it was about it that makes it seem afterthought-ish to you, right? But you, the reviewer, the critic, will be better served to avoid couching this in terms of guesses, right? Leave the guesses aside um, and tell me instead of what made it feel like an afterthought, okay? So, yes, maybe reviewers can do us some good, um, though, as you know, I hate reviews uh, and don't like this myself. But anyway, maybe reviewers can do us some good in telling us this movie is good or bad, but they're not doing that job in as much as they are just reaching for uh reaching for guesses in lazy categories lewis again in, in the rest of the article lewis emphasizes this is vocabulary that critics have a hard time leaving behind i have found it's actually it's been a revelation to me since reading that essay i have found how much of my own vocabulary when i'm talking about stuff um you know when i'm trying to do analysis tends to use that same vocabulary of sort of a guest reconstruction of what was going on in the author's mind we don't know exactly what was going on in the author's mind I'm not saying nothing was but but we don't have access to that what we have is the book and that's what we should be talking about that 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 that's what we should be talking about um and somebody who says it was an afterthought is using at best a heuristic a rule of thumb you know that is sort of vaguely uh gesturing at a piece of analysis which they're not really thinking through um don't say that don't say it's an afterthought um don't say they're trying to cater to teenage boys tell me instead what is it about the film that makes you say that and what is the impact of that how does that in fact again people say they're destroying the story for the sake of commercialization 
what does that even mean? You know, it, it, you, that, that, that does what exactly what that doesn't do is to get into actually looking at how these particular elements or these particular scenes to which people object interact with the story. Um, so again, I, what, what I am objecting to is, um, is the avoidance in that way of, uh, of analysis. And Ben, uh, Ben Bassett points out, and Ben, you are absolutely right to say this. Ben says that the argument runs the other way too. Frequently, film defenders claim that the writers were thinking certain things in order to defend against certain criticism. Absolutely right, Ben. Um, and, uh, yes, absolutely. And it's, it's, it is, it is invalid on both sides. Um, you know, in talking about the sort of the project undertaken by the writers earlier on, um, you know, my goal there, you know, like there I'm, you know, I'm, I'm trying to avoid that. They have said the general project that they're trying to do. Part of the things that I say that I conclude about that are conclusions that I've come to based on my analysis of, of, of the film itself. Um, but I absolutely agree, Ben, that simply to say, oh, if you don't like this, well, um, you know, I, I, that's not what they were trying to do. They were trying to do this, so it's okay. Um, you're right. If, if, in as much as that is guesswork of this same kind, um, it uh, it doesn't it doesn't work. Um, uh, it doesn't work any better. Um, okay. Good. Um, all right. Um, let me then move on to my next section, which is um, looking at. Um, looking at actual passages uh, from the film and discussing some of these things in detail. General note that I would make here at the beginning. Um, here I just want to, I want to pause for a second to mention um, the Riddles in the Dark series of podcasts I've done. I know that many people who listen to my podcast don't all listen to Riddles in the Dark, um, uh, but Riddles in the Dark has had a huge impact on me as I've been watching the films. Um, and I just want to kind of explain that a little bit. Um, when uh, Dave, Kale, and I started doing Riddles in the Dark two years ago, um, we our whole purpose, our whole plan, was to think about the project of adaptation. There are websites out there that do movie speculations and exclusive insider scoops and that kind of thing. And uh, not only do I have no desire to throw my hat into that particular ring, I'm not even very interested uh, in that kind of thing. I try to keep up with it because I feel like it's my job, but I... I, I it's left to myself. I wouldn't pay very much attention to it. Um, that stuff doesn't interest me. What does interest me is thinking about the text. I have always said that even parts of the Lord of the Rings films that I dislike, even the parts I hate most, I find useful. I find fruitful intellectually. Because as I think through them and compare them with what's going on in the book, either specifically on a scene-by-scene -scene basis or largely and more thematically, I come to understand the books themselves better. I come to a better and more nuanced appreciation of them because I have had this other thing to put next to them. And it draws my attention to stuff that I always took for granted in the books. And on many occasions have I found this true. So when we did, when we started Riddles in the Dark, the whole goal, the whole point was, let's think through the Hobbit story from this particular point of view. That is, knowing that an adaptation is coming out, 
let's think of this from an adaptation term, not just analyzing the adaptation and doing the comparison and contrast that, you know, I have always done, uh, you know, in my teaching on the Lord of the Rings with the Lord of the Rings films, but before the films are released, right? Knowing that they are happening, let us think through what questions face them, given that we're going to take the Hobbit story and we're going to put it on screen. What do we have to think about? What do we have to do? What are the elements? What are, you know, thinking about the characters, thinking about the themes, thinking about the, the different scenes and sequences. Um, what kinds of things can we do? What will be easy to do? What will be hard to do? Um, and to be thinking through, again, focused on analysis of the text, thinking about the story, thinking about the themes. And what kind of challenges face a person, any person, who undertakes to, to do an adaptation. And of course, specifically applying it, uh, to this, uh, to this particular film by these particular, uh, by, by these particular people. We know some things about, uh, you know, the tendencies of Peter Jackson and Philip Boyens and, uh, you know, Alan Lee and John Howe and, and, and everybody else because we've seen the Lord of the Rings films. So we had something to work with and, and to sort of help us guess. And that was the last and in my mind, in some ways, the least important part of what we've been doing in Riddles in the Dark, that is the actual guessing part, the actual riddles part, um, where we're sort of speculating about what, you know, given all these things that we've been thinking about, about the questions that need to be answered, what questions do we think they actually will give? And we usually lay out, you know, we lay out different options and imagine different paths. Um, you know, and I, it, it's been fun sort of thinking, if I were doing this, what would I do? How would I approach this project if I, if I, you know, were compelled to, to do it? You know, if I were in that position, um, I have found it a very interesting and, 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 and a very fulfilling, uh, kind of intellectual exercise. The consequence of it, though, the consequence of having done that, uh, for two full years now, um, and have, having thought through this stuff pretty thoroughly is that when I see the films, I'm kind of in a very different place. Um, those questions are what are filling my head. In some ways, I don't really even consume the movies as movies. Like I, I, you know, if I, I don't go to see all that many movies anyway, but when I do, um, you know, I, I, I'm, I don't know. I, I respond to them very differently than I do to the Hobbit films because I've done so much thinking about all these, I've got this series of questions in my head, Right. You know, all of these different issues, all of these different challenges, all these things, which, you know, I, I, you know, having thought through them, I think, you know, think this thing won't really work on film. They probably will have to change it. And if they do change it, they might change it in this way or that way. What's going to be going on? So therefore, you know, when I'm watching these films, um, the answers to these questions are what I'm really focused on. I remember after I watched An Unexpected Journey for the first time, people were asking me, did you think it was a good movie? And I, and I just sort of paused for a second because I'm like, I don't, I don't know, actually. I, I, I'm not sure I can answer that question. Um, I can talk about the adaptation. That's what I was really focusing on, but I, you know, I'm not really, uh, I don't really know about whether it was a good movie. And I found coming back to it, um, you know, parts of the film that really annoyed a lot of people, such as, for instance, the ridiculous, uh, the ridiculously failed attempt by Radagast in his bunny sled to lead the goblins and wargs off in a different direction when he fails ever to go in a different direction and keeps them really close into them. That whole scene doesn't make any sense at all. And although I was kind of aware of that at the time, it didn't really bother me because I was completely focused on other things. When I came back and watched it again about nine months later, uh, you know, well after it was out in video, um, that scene really struck me differently. And I was like, oh man, boy, that 
that is annoying, isn't it? Um, <laughs> so, so again, you know, my, my whole approach to the desolation of Smaug has not been, what are my impressions of it as a movie? You know, was it fun? Did I have a hard time with this or that? You know, from the beginning, I've just been thinking about, uh, the adaptation and what kind, how are they answering these adaptation questions? Um, that, uh, that I've been thinking about, um, through the Riddles in the Dark podcast series. Okay, tune in soon for the second uh, half of this episode in which I actually talk about the Desolation of Smaug. Thanks for listening, and Godspeed.